If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you don't, the scripture is printed in the bulletin. We're going to be looking at a couple of portions of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. So give ear now, this is God's word. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Verse 10, And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Then chapter 9, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he who has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way through us. I'm sorry, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission, flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word. So this is the last in our series on a life of stewardship. We've seen that God calls us to be good stewards, managers of our, managers of our time, our talent, and our treasures. And we've looked at this in all of our lives. In our first sermon, uh, our second sermon, we looked at tithing 10% of our income to the church the question is, well, what do you do with the 90% that's left over, right? Does God have anything to say about that? You know, what happens when needs come up that ask us for more than the 10% we've already given? You know, are we to say, are we free to say, you know what? No, I've already given my 10% to the church and my obligation stops. You know, the two terms the church uses really are tithes and offerings, Okay, the tithe is the 10% that goes to the church, but our offerings are contributions that we make to either to the church, to other ministries, or to friends and family or neighbors that are above and beyond that 10%. And today we're going to see kind of the what, the why, the how that Scripture gives us in terms of thinking about our offerings, thinking about what and how to give above and beyond. And so we're going to see this in three points. First, we're going to see how to give offerings. Okay, how to give offerings. 
Second, offerings affect on you. And then third, offerings affect on others. Okay, so how to give offerings. Offerings affect on you and then offerings affect on others. So first, how to give offerings. When it comes to above and beyond, this is really verses 6 through 8, um, or six, 6 and 7, I guess, really. Um, when it comes to offerings above and beyond, the whole key here, the whole key to any of your offerings is your attitude. Okay, what Paul describes here in these two verses is kind of a, of a competition, and this is a battle, and it's a battle that we all deal with, okay? It's a battle that's in my heart. It's a battle that crops up all the time. I think it's a battle in your heart if you're human. It's the spiral of sparingly versus the balloon of bountifully. Okay? The spiral of sparingly versus the balloon of bountifully. These are two things that war at each other. Verse 6 says that how you give will determine how you feel and what happens to you. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And so it's interesting because how you give both flows from your heart and it shapes your heart. Okay, how you give flows from your heart and it shapes your heart. Let's talk about the spiral of sparingly for a minute. You give sparingly when, as verse 7 says, you give reluctantly and under compulsion. Okay? That's what it means to be part of that spiral. It's the downward spiral of sparingly. When you give reluctantly and under compulsion, so you really don't want to give, but you do, or if you feel like you have to give or something bad's going to happen to you. Right? If you give reluctantly or under compulsion, you're giving sparingly. You give bountifully, when you give eagerly and cheerfully. Okay? Makes sense. You give sparingly when you're focused on really what you're having to give. Okay? When you're focused on the money that you have to give. Or when you're focused on the time. We're not just talking about money, although Paul is here. When you, when you think about the time that you're having to give, or you're focused only on the expertise that you're offering, when you're focused only on the gift that you're giving, you're giving sparingly. You're in that downward spiral of sparingly. You give bountifully, though, when you're focused on the need that will be met. See the difference there? Either you focus on what you have to give, you know, or you're focusing on looking at the need that's being met. That's how you know if you're giving sparingly or bountifully. You give sparingly when you're focused on what you could have done with the money yourself. Right? That happens. You give bountifully when you're focused on what the money does for the person or for the ministry or for what happens. Okay? Right? And this, this happens. You know, you think about it. Oh, man, I, oh, if only I hadn't given that money, I could have done this. Right? That's a sparingly type of gift. But when you're overwhelmed by what has happened to the need, when you're overwhelmed and excited because everything that has been, that's been done with your gift has brought forth fruit, as, as good things have come out of it, when you're focused on that, you're giving bountifully. Giving sparingly 
really destroys you. Okay? It eats you up inside and it will control you and it will destroy you from within. Okay? Because every time you want something after you give, right? Anytime a financial hardship comes, it reminds you that you could have had that money. Right? When you give that way. And this creates a lasting bitterness that eats you inside and it grows weeds in your heart. Okay? When you give sparingly, when you give reluctantly or under compulsion, it creates this downward spiral of sparingly. These weeds crop up and they begin to take over more and more and more of your heart. On the other hand, giving bountifully, it really gives you life. Because again, every bit of good that comes out of your gift, when you see anything good that's related even remotely to what you gave, you see it and you're reminded that you had a part in that. That you partnered in that and that you get, I mean, it's not about credit, it's about joy that you got to see that happen, right? I mean, that's, that, that's this ballooning upward. It's this thing that sort of fills up and fills up and fills up and rises. And what's amazing is that that balloon that, that sense of joy that comes because of what you've done is always available to boost your heart and your spirit. You know, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad life gets, no matter how frustrated you might be, just remembering that you partnered in the meeting of a need fills you with joy, begins to sort of push back whatever frustration you're dealing with and reminds you that, you know, what good things came out of that. That never, ever leaves you. Anytime you give, anytime you give bountifully, something, there's like a rock that is stabilizing in the middle of your heart. I mean, rock's not in a heart. It's not a good illustration, I guess. But there's an anchor there that you can go back to and continue to remind yourself of the blessing that you have been to others, that God enabled you to be to others. And that doesn't go away. Proverbs 11.24 is just wonderful on this. It says, One person gives freely and yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You catch that? One gives freely and yet grows all the richer. That's the bountiful balloon, the ballooning upward of bounty. You know, as you give, God gives back. You feel this joy, this happiness, this sense of partnership, this sense of meeting need, and you grow all the richer. Okay, not necessarily monetarily richer, but something far more significant. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Because this person is focused on what they have, on their stuff, on their money, and they don't want to give. They, they only give reluctantly or under compulsion when they feel like they have to. And that focus, you end up, it's like the ring in the Lord of the Rings, right? It's like Gollum, right? It becomes this all-consuming thing where all you can focus on is what you have. And you end up spending more of your time and your talent and focused on your treasure. And it's consuming. It's consuming. I know that advancing the vision for so many of you has been 
just this kind of upward ballooning of bounty. So many of you in November 2007 gave. So many of you have given since then, you know, pledged and, then, and have been making contributions above and beyond what you normally give to the church. So many of you have experienced it. That's why we want to do these Advancing the Vision Sundays to give you updates so that you'll know how, how God has used your gifts so that you can experience the bounty, so that you can experience the fact that you really have been a partner in everything that God has done through Advancing the Vision. That's amazing joy. That's amazing joy, all that God has done. And you've been a part of that. You have been a part of that, everything that's happened. It's interesting that Paul says um, in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, you know, he says, you started a year ago not only to do this work, but to desire to do it. Paul was collecting money from the Gentile Christians that were outside of, um, yeah, they were outside of Israel. He was taking a collection because the Gentiles were more wealthy in their context, and poverty had struck the Jerusalem church and the Jewish Christians that were struggling in Jerusalem. And so Paul was doing this collection, and when he went through Corinth, they all said, you know what, we really want to give, and they pledged to give. Paul said, a year ago, you pledged to give. Um, And then verse 11, he says, so now finish doing it well, so that your readiness and desiring to do it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. And I thought, man, that's exactly, that's what Rick just said, right? Right? He said, look, we're going to try to end the campaign this calendar year. Let's finish strong. Let's finish strong. We all had desires going in um, to make a contribution. And we're seeing here that given the fact that we can be a partner in all that's being done, let's finish strong. Let's finish strong. Now, it's important for us, I think, even though, well, just to ask the question, it's not asked in the text, but in terms of application, because we live in a day and age where, technologically, I don't want to say this right. I'm going to, I'm going to, well, because of technology, if someone's suffering in any part of the world, the chances of you hearing about it have radically increased. Okay. Using the internet, using news, using the, um, the clever manipulation of folks in media, you know, it's really easy to make everybody feel so guilty that if you're not living in a cardboard box right now, you should feel guilty that you're not giving more of your money, right? I mean, I've been made to feel that way before. And honestly, when it comes to this sort of giving above and beyond, I mean, it's hard because you feel evil just for thinking it. But if you're like me, you think it, like, how much am I supposed to give? You know, like, what is, like, does God just want me to give until I don't have a home anymore? Does God want, I mean, how does this whole thing work, right? What are the rules about giving above and beyond? Um, I want to give you some things to think about so that you can think wisely about this, okay? Because it's a real issue. It's a real issue because if you ever go to Starbucks, you know, are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to spend two bucks for a cup of coffee? You allowed to buy a Frappuccino? That's three fifty. If you get the small one, if you get the big one, it's like four something, Is that wasteful living, right? I mean, are you being evil because you are not taking the money that you really could have spent more wisely and giving it to someone else? I mean, that's a question that I think plagues all of us. And there have been books that have been written by folks who are even from the church who would basically say that if someone else is suffering and you have anything extra, 
and they'll tell you what extra means, you know, because they've got a pretty clean sense of, you know, subsistence living, and that's what you need to be living at. And if you have anything above and beyond, then you need to be giving that away, right? And so there's a lot of confusion. I think that there's a lot of struggle that comes. And so what does the Bible say about this? Well, I, I guess for me, I would say that there's really two principles that help you think through how much are you required to give, okay? And the two principles are, first, the idea of moral proximity. Moral proximity. And I got this idea from a gentleman named John Schneider who wrote a book called The Good of Affluence, which is a really interesting work on the subject of wealth and how and a biblical perspective on wealth. It's not the last word, but it's, it's a good word. He uses this phrase of moral proximity. And the idea there is, does Scripture say that you are morally obligated to meet this need, okay? And what this does is this tells us that there are things that Scripture is really clear about, and then there's things that Scripture is not so clear about when it comes to meeting needs, okay? And so, for instance, Scripture says that we are to take care of our families, okay? If there's a need in your family, we have a moral obligation to do what we can to wisely provide help. Okay, sometimes that could be financial. Oftentimes, financial help is not the kind of help that's wisest, right? If someone's in a financial mess, sometimes they need something that's beyond finances to get them out of the mess, right? And so you need to be wise. But in terms of family, you've got a moral obligation to take care of your family. Um, Bible says that if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an unbeliever, okay? And so, you know, the idea of family, your close friends, your church family, like these are descending moral obligations, okay? They are things that Scripture says you need to take care of your church family. You know, if you've got a real friendship with someone, there's a moral obligation there to be a friend to them, okay? Um, and so you want to identify the places where Scripture puts responsibility on you to help, okay? And so that's one principle that determines whether or not that idea of moral proximity, is this person morally close enough to you in terms of what Scripture says. The other principle, I think, is one of calling. Okay, it's one of calling. And I'm going to use calling in a little bit of a different way than maybe you've thought about it before. Um, God has not called you to solve all the world's problems. Okay? God has not called you to be the Savior of the world. John the Baptist said... I think it's John chapter 3. I think it's John chapter 3. He said, I am not the Christ. Okay? None of us are the Christ. None of us are the Savior of the world. And so you are not under obligation. God has not called you to meet and solve every need that exists in the world. Okay? You need to ask yourself, is God, like, what is God's call in my life? in the area of my finances, in the area, I mean, just my mission in life. What is God calling me to be? What is God calling me to do? Okay, clearly, I'm a member of a family, right? And so I've got obligations there. God's called me to help my family. I'm part of a church, if you're part of a church. God's called me to help my church family. Again, not in exactly the same way, but in a similar way, maybe to, to a lesser degree. Um, now, some of you, I know, feel called 
to particular needs that exist in the world. Okay, there are some of you who are moved with, a, with what you sense is a call from God to help the gospel flourish overseas. Like your heart is just gripped with foreign missionaries and wanting to support their ability to share the gospel with people who have never, ever heard about Jesus. Okay? Others of you have a deep burning desire to see the gospel go to the poor in our community in San Diego. There's a number of you who have been stirred up and you have a particular heart that some, for some of you has even turned into a calling to try to help women who have been sexually trafficked and prostituted in San Diego. And you have the sense of a calling to help with that. And so you are giving to generate hope, either your time or your talent or your treasure, right? And so I just, I want you to have the sense of that, that God does sometimes put a special call on our lives to take care of particular needs that go beyond what scripture explicitly states in terms of obligation, okay? And you want to be open to that. So moral proximity and a sense of calling. And the way you figure that out really is through the word and prayer, okay? The word tells you exactly what God you know, wants you to be obligated to. And as you go into God's presence and say, Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Like, what are there needs that you really are moving me or, or where I should be focusing my efforts on? Are there needs that exist in the church, in the city, in the world that you are calling me to devote a portion maybe of my over and above income to meeting? Okay? I think that the Lord put that heart on so many of you when we started advancing the vision. You had this sense of, you know, we really want this vision to be advanced. We want this gospel to go forward, this gospel that, that preaches to people the completed work of Jesus, that you don't have to earn your way to heaven, right? This gospel that doesn't just cover you with the righteousness of Christ, but it changes you from the inside, right? This gospel that is so broad that it affects how you work. It affects the way you view your workplace. It affects how you view your community in terms of reaching out and showing mercy to others. Y'all were so gripped by this that you pledged $2 million, right? To see that vision go forward. That's part of the calling. And you get that as you go to the Lord in prayer and as you read his word. And so these are the things that really God has built or given us in order for us to determine our callings. And as you do that, Hopefully you're reflecting all of scripture's broad teaching. And remember what we talked about last week, that the two beats of God's heart are celebration and care, right? God has called you to use your money to celebrate life, okay? To enjoy life to a degree, but then also to care for other people. You know, you want to do both of those things. And I think having that whole of scripture's teaching with those two beats will help you, hopefully, to get to that place where you can feel comfortable that it's okay to have a frappuccino every now and again, right? It's okay to, you know, to enjoy some of the blessings that God has given you because in some ways wealth is a blessing for hard work, okay? Wealth can also, be a, uh, can also serve as a curse if you get, be, end up enslaved to your money, but those are those things that you need to bring together. Okay, so how to, you know, so how to give offerings, it's the sense you want to do it bountifully, not sparingly. Our second point, the offerings effect on you. 
Paul goes on in 2 Corinthians 9 and verses 8 through 11 to describe what happens to you when you give in this way. When you give bountifully, it's amazing because you all know you have this good feeling, right? You get this good feeling. Well, that good feeling isn't just a psychological trick, okay? That's actually God at work in you. The blessing, that feeling that you get is part of God's blessings. Look at what he says. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The blessings that you get from giving is the grace of God poured out in your life. This kind of bountiful giving, it literally bursts heaven open and God's grace pours down. When you give bountifully, heaven's open, heaven opens and grace is poured out. And it makes you sufficient for everything. It makes you sufficient for everything. Now, chapter 3, verse 5 says explicitly, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient. Okay, And so again, this what happens is that this means that when you give this way, you experience to a greater degree your union with Christ. Because he's the one through whom God pours out his grace. As you're united to him, as you're connected to him, as you give out of the bounty of what he's done for you, you receive back. God gives you this sense of grace. Try it and you will see. If you try it, you'll see. Give like this with joy to a need and you will feel this elation. I mean, this is one way to deepen your experience of Jesus. And it's amazing because verse 8 says that when your heart is right, it's not just going to affect your giving, but it affects everything. It affects everything. You may abound in every good work. Look at verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So this is part of what God then does. As you experience the grace, God then gives you more. Okay? And and catch what I'm saying here. God will give you the time, the talent, or the treasure so that you will be able to continue to give this generously. Okay? Okay? God wants to find, he's, you know, eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, looking for someone whose heart is truly devoted to him. When he finds that person, when he sees people being bountifully generous, he wants that to continue because that's an expression of his heart. He wants people like that. And so, again, sometimes it doesn't mean that if you give, then all of a sudden you get all this money. I'm not saying that. That's not, I mean, that's not necessarily true. Oftentimes, the grace that we receive, the joy, the recognition that, you know what? I didn't even need that money anymore. Like, I've been living without it. I didn't need it. In fact, look at all that happened. Makes you even more filled with God's grace, better able to serve others with your time and your talent, if not also your treasure. This joy then just spills out of our lives. And it helps you to walk in God's love, to walk in the spirit, because you're grateful, you're generous, and you're trusting in God for your future. So um, there was one person that I talked to um, who at the beginning of the Advancing the Vision campaign, she had prayed and and thought through a number that she was going to commit to. 
And for her, she felt like uh, she really could only commit to a one-time gift because of her financial situation. And as she got ready to make that gift, she went to the Lord again, and she felt like the Lord was prompting her to give that amount, but then to give it every month. She thought it was kind of odd. She didn't really know where the money was going to come from, but she had a sense that God was leading her, and so she pledged that as a monthly gift. And she told me with a smile, she said, you know what? Every single month, I have watched God come through. Every single month, God has shown up in surprising ways where he's provided money from a friend at times. He's enabled me to do some extra, like something extra on the side that's provided new money. And every single month, she has been able to meet that monthly obligation. And one of the things I think that happens, and it's hard because, you know, I'm just like you. I've heard some people tell these same kinds of stories and make you feel really creepy inside because they're not handling money well. You know, there are, there are churches that talk about money in ways that just don't make you feel happy. Um, and so I just want to acknowledge that I'm telling stories that I know other people have told in different ways and for different ministries. But, um, but this stuff, it, <laughs> just because the wrong people tell these stories doesn't mean that they're not also true in the right ministries also. If I could just say that. Um, when you give there are times when God is stretching your faith. And it's only when we step out in faith that we could ever see a miracle. Do you know what I'm saying? Like sometimes God's calling us to step out because he wants us to see how able he is, how bountifully he can provide. Um, I had a, uh, a pretty remarkable experience personally with a, a pastor um, he had invited me over. He was close to retiring, and he invited me to basically take his library. And, uh, and so I went over to, and I spent probably three or four hours going through his books, taking out what I wanted, you know, packing them up, putting them in my car. And over those couple hours, we were talking, and I was asking him, so what are you doing? He's a pastor of a church of maybe, I don't know, 25 people. Um, they're all... I think 60 years older and older. I mean, he's, he's around that age. And so it's a church that, you know, looks like it's not going to make it, you know, past this generation, but he's faithfully shepherding the folks that God has given him, you know, um, up till the point where he's going to retire. You know, I was just curious because his, the house that he lives in is owned by the church. It's part of, it's a manse. And, um, and I'm just thinking like, what's he going to do? And, you know, my own fears of, what am I going to do? You know, how does this whole retirement thing work anyways? You know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I asked him, so, you know, where do you think the Lord's going to take you when you retire? And he said, you know what? Um, my, my kids are kind of spread out all over the country. One of my kids has a home in Tennessee that has uh, living quarters. And they've told us that we're welcome to come. They really love us to live with them and our grandkids. And, um, and so that's what we're going to do. And, uh, and I was kind of floored because, well, not because of what he said, but what happened to me as he told me that, it gave me like true release because here was God providing for this pastor at the end of his life, at the end of his career, um, and his needs were met. Not because he saved enough, not because he was, you know, not because he did the stock market, not because of anything, any of the retire- because God provided through his family and met his needs. 
<clears throat> that has come back over and over again in my life to remind me that God can take care of needs. God is going to provide. We don't have to worry. It doesn't mean that we're not wise and try to save and, and have a retirement, but it just it gives me hope. You know, we've, we're renting a house. We'll probably never own a house. And there are times where, like, the house across the street was for sale, and it was probably the cheapest house in our neighborhood that will ever be ever offered ever, you know. And so we were trying to figure out, can we make this work? Can we buy this house? And we couldn't afford it. And, uh, and I was, you know, it's, it's funny because I was thinking about the house. We need a house. We need a house. We need a house. We need a house. And I became this, the, the, the reluctant compulsive. Like, I was like, well, how much money do we have? And can we, can we work this and do all these things? And I became obsessed with getting this house. And I had to preach this gospel of this other pastor to myself again and say, you know what, God, he's going to take care of us. And I realized, wait, and by the way, like, why do you need to have a house? <laughs> like, how does that work? Like, where did that come into play anyways? Like, why have you set your heart on needing to own a house? And when I remembered that, it was like, oh, yeah, I'm free. I don't need this. God's going to take care of us. And literally, it just, it was like that battle was going on and, you know, the bountiful side won. And I realized I don't need, I can open my hands and trust the Lord. You know, it's when we step out in faith that God will show up. You know, and sometimes we don't ever step out in faith, so we never give God a chance to show up in our lives. And so, but this is the, the, the effect that when you give bountifully, the effect that it has on you. God fills you with his grace. He makes you confident in him for everything for every good work. It spills it into all your life and it sets you free. It sets you free. But it doesn't stop there. This, uh, your offerings also have an effect on others. This is verses 12 to 15. Your offerings meet real needs, verse 12. The ministry of this service, this offering, is not only supplying the needs of the saints. So it does. It supplies needs. When you give, you really do meet needs. And this is exciting because what this means is that God uses your gifts, your offerings, to meet real needs. There are things God doesn't do if we don't do it. Good to know, right? So your gifts meet real needs. God uses you. But then, that good work of bountiful joy and generosity, it doesn't just spill out in every area of your life, but it actually impacts other people. It compels other people to thank God. That's what verse 12 says. It's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, these are the recipients, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them. And so when you give like this, when you bountifully give to needs that are met, other people will glorify God. You will move other people to give God praise and glory because they'll see your gifts came from him. They'll see God used you to give, to provide for them, and their thankfulness will move them to worship. To worship. That's exactly what happened with Nick. You know, with Mike in his ministry over there. Because of your gifts, he comes out and does a church planning internship. Because of your gifts, he's the mercy director for downtown. Because of your gifts, he's there doing a study because of your gifts, Nick has moved to worship 
to be, to, to, he's filled with thanks and he is glorifying God. And the cycle returns. It returns because then what they do, what the recipients do, they offer thanks. And then verse 14, they long for you and pray for you. And that's this wonderful upward ballooning that just like blows up in a sense with joy and thanksgiving because you, the giver, are blessed. The recipient is blessed. And then the recipient blesses you back. And what you have then is you got an extended family. You've got a wider sense. For in Paul's day, these were the Gentile Christians giving to the Jewish Christians. It led the Jewish Christians to give thanks for the Gentile Christians. That was huge because Jews and Gentiles hated each other in the first century. But what Paul was doing was he used money to create this relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles who hated each other and moved them so that they were now glorifying God for each other. They were longing for each other. They were, chapter 8, verse 4, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They were so moved with love and joy. They were begging, Paul, can we please give? I know that was your heart. So many of you had the exact same attitude. What can we do to help plant more churches? What can we do to help the ministry of Harbor go forward? The recipients are returning thanks and praise to God. And you, you are partners in everything that has been accomplished. The only way that Paul can conclude this whole discussion is to come back in verse 15 of chapter 9, come back to the source and say, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The gift is Jesus. Because what has happened in the early church, what happens here at Harbor, is that people are so moved because Jesus was rich. And yet, for your sake, he became poor. He became poor on the cross so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is the outflow of that. This is what offering looks like. This is what our attitude toward giving looks like when we understand and put our faith and follow the gift of the gospel. We follow Jesus Christ. This is the invitation, and this is what turns that crank. This is how we go from being sparingly to bountifully. It's we come back to Jesus and we are moved by what he's done for us. He lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death we should have died and has been raised from the dead so that we all can know God and experience his bountiful grace that grips our hearts and then it spills out. If you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, He gave himself for you. He gave everything, not just a portion of his money, but he gave everything for you. He offered his own life. He died the death for your sins so that your sins could be paid for. I don't know how you feel coming into a church that's talking about money. I apologize for maybe sounding like other churches that you'd probably want to run away from, but I mean, for us at Harbor, 
money is all about the gospel, right? They're, they're directly connected. That even our money is not what's important. What's important is the gift of God. It's Jesus. That's first and foremost. The issue is our heart before him and a relationship with him. In one sense, we know that the money, once we're gripped with that, the money takes care of itself. And so I'd invite you to start a relationship with him, just like Nick, just like Joe. Go deeper. Go deeper with the Lord. Let me lead us in prayer as we close. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for leading us. For leading us in this. You gave away everything for us. And you've made your grace to pour out richly upon us. Fill us with the bounty of your grace so that we would bountifully give, that we'd bountifully meet needs. And if there are those, well, for those, Jesus, who are here and haven't yet closed in a relationship with you, haven't started with you, would you help them? Would you draw them near to yourself? Help them to pray, Jesus, I'm sorry, I've lived too long apart from you. Forgive me of my sins and help me experience the richness of your grace and your forgiveness. Draw them in and help all the rest of us go deeper and to seek you for our own personal calling so we'd know how you want us to think about giving. We pray this in your name. Amen.